This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case I got bored. Well, here we are, ladies and gentlemen, another episode of Literary Treks, episode 201. We got over the 200 hump and we're going on to the next 100 episodes until we reach 300. Dan, Gunther, my co-host here on the show, how does it feel to start another 100 episodes? It's amazing. I, I feel like I'm I'm saying hello to everyone from the other side. I, if Matt were here, we could have somebody break out into song, but it's not going to happen with me. So, but hello from the other side. It is. It's like yeah. It's like a a whole new world. A whole new world. <laughs> uh, I had to get a song in there. Just in honor of the past episodes with Matt. Every once in a while, we'll break into song. This is Literary Treks the Musical. It depends how much I've had to drink, but yeah, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> what what have you been drinking tonight, uh, Dan? Actually, a Diet Pepsi, so that's not likely to contribute to any sort of melodic happenings here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You and that caffeine. Woo! Baby, watch out. Very true. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's get right into it because that's what we do. We want to talk about the stuff that we're reading here in the Star Trek literary universe. So before we do that, I just want to mention that at towards the end of the show, we do have a email from one of our listeners and we will be reading that and discussing it. So who knows what will be asked, but it is a question and it's a question that we will have to answer and answer honestly. I swear to you, I have my right hand up right now, honest answers. So stay in, stay tuned after the feature for that. So let's go. No news this week. We're going straight into the comics. And the first comic we want to discuss is Waypoint number six. Came out a few weeks ago. We wanted to make sure we got this one covered. And so Waypoint number six, from my understanding, is the last issue of the Waypoint comics. Is that what you've heard too, Dan? That is true, and the little blurb at the start of this comic actually does say for our final issue. Uh, so, really sad. You know, this was kind of an odd series, very different stories. You know, a lot of a lot of 
stuff that maybe people didn't latch onto right away, but some very quirky stories, some fun corners of the Star Trek universe. And I got to say, I'm really sad to see this series go. I've really come to enjoy it. So, uh, yeah, number six, the final one. It's Waypoint 6 that really makes me wish we were getting more. I there have there's been some that I was like kind of lukewarm on and others that I really liked. But when I got into Waypoint 6 and I read it, I was like I really do like Waypoint. Mm-hmm. And then it's like what well, this is the last one and it's like we have to bring this back. And I know Sarah Gatos at IDW would love to have this back. So maybe maybe one day we'll get a Waypoint phase two come through speaking of phase two there's a story in here called star trek phase two which is the last story so we're going to get to that in a minute the first story is the rebound effect and this is an original series story and our feature character in this one is christine chapel and so the rebound effect takes place on stardate 2942.1 and Basically, she's on a, she records her medical log and they're hosting, she was at a medical conference and she's all beat up and ripped up and everything like that because at the conference, as soon as they take off in a shuttle pod, all of a sudden the guy who's navigating, who's piloting the shuttle pod passes out on the gears and, you know, because it's all buttons and levers, you know, you're just going to hit something wrong and all of a sudden the shuttle pod starts going off and gonna go into crash into the atmosphere and get destroyed or whatever so chapel has to jump in and land the shuttle pod safely to the ground and she's reminiscing about this telling dr mccoy because mccoy's like my gosh uh, not doctor she's not a doctor yet my gosh nurse chapel what happened down there well i did this and that and because you have great piloting skills you were able to save the shuttle pod but we find that her other companion here who's like a lizard crewman he passed out because something happened to him after this conference it's like something's affecting him and he's and he's he's coming in and out of his state and he's almost about to die because she's got some professors with her like oh my gosh christine he's dying and she's like well i'll help him but then these big monsters show up on the planet and the professor's like we got to shoot the monster and then I feel like I'm one of my kids telling a story right now. We have to shoot them. This is amazing. I, I want to hear the I want to hear the audio drama <laughs> by you of this comic. This is great. <laughs> we have to shoot the monster. And Christine's like, no, that's not what we do. Starfleet says that we have to not shoot the monster. We have to try to communicate with it. But anyway, I don't really know how they got away from the monster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they kind of gloss over that um this story i i I did enjoy it and the artwork is is very unorthodox but i really got into it but yeah kind of what you're bringing up here the the linear the lack of linear storytelling i i found myself getting a little bit lost as i was reading this one i did you kind of find that as well with the like the monster thing, I, I kind of realized a page later. I was like, oh, wait a minute. How did they get away from that thing? I did. There were, I did get a little lost. I actually read it twice because of that. Mm. Um, and reading a second time, it made more sense. Yeah, I don't know really how they got away from the monster. I think we were just supposed to assume that, well, they didn't just go and shoot the monster, that they somehow 
magically got away from it. I don't know how. But it's not really it doesn't really matter. Actually the monsters don't really have anything to do with the story. I mean they really mm-hmm. don't add anything. I mean it could have just been that they crash landed on the planet and this uh crew member of hers, what was his name? Scon, I think it was, or Scove. Scove is mm-hmm. passed out and all they had to do is say, Oh, we need to get him back to the ship. Let's communicate to the Enterprise to come beam us out. And then it could have just ended there. I guess the monster's just there to kind of add some more drama to it. But there was really nothing that played out afterwards. Yeah, the the scary musical sting right before the, the fade to black for the commercial break. And then, then they come back and they're on the ship. And you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, and they're talking in, <laughs> in sickbay. And then as she's talking to Dr. McCoy about what happened... All of a sudden, there's this medical emergency alert, and they call Dr. McCoy to forward conference room one. And this is where I really got confused, because the next panel, it looks like they're down on a planet. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I thought he got, got called to a conference room. <laughs> and now they're on a planet where this massacre was. So I, I had to assume, well, I guess he got called to a conference room to discuss what happened, and then they beamed down to the planet. That, that part was confusing to me you see the panel i'm talking about at the top yeah i'm wondering if it's supposed to be like the recreation deck or something like in the motion picture some big open area but it definitely looks like there's like buildings in the background or something that's what i was wondering too is it just a big comp like you're saying a big recreation area like is it a big part of the ship that we haven't seen but yeah it looks like there's buildings and and maybe ships flying through like it's coruscant from star Mm -hmm. wars or something (laughs) yeah yeah definitely uh some interesting choices by the by the artists here i i don't know if maybe yeah i don't i don't know what happened there (laughs) well i thought it was a good story uh, especially reading a second time because it cleared things up and i think sometimes we have to go through it a second time because each of these stories is half an issue so sometimes i feel like they have to try to condense the story it's maybe longer than what it than it the story's longer than what the pages allow them to do, because especially when you get to the very last panel, there's a lot of text of like what happened afterwards. It's kind of like, well, and so we kind of reversed engineered everything and everybody was all well and happily ever after. It seemed like a quick resolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it, it's kind of a, a Voyager. Everything gets wrapped up with a captain's log episode, you know, <laughs> right. <laughs> but. I don't know. Sorry for Voyager fans. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, I enjoy, I thought it was, I, I do like the artwork. It's, it's very different. It looks like it's almost done in chalk and, and pencil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, uh, like, like colored pencils or something like that. It's a really cool style. I really enjoyed it. You know, especially with this being the last issue, I got to say like the different artists on each of the stories, the different styles, I, this is one I'm really considering getting the, uh, trade paperback omnibus version of it when it comes out, which, uh, I did look it up before we started. Uh, it's coming out on uh, November 28th is the release date for the, the paperback anthology that has all six issues in it. So, uh, this might be one that I would love to, you know, keep in that form on my shelf because this is just yet another example of some really cool, really unique artwork. I think a trade paperback would really be a great format for these stories because since there's six issues and there's two stories in each issue, you're basically getting 12 stories, all very unique, Mm -hmm. covering different crews and time periods and such in one book. I I think that's that would be a great buy. So if if you've only read one or two of the waypoints and and you want to read them all, then 
I think that's definitely the way to go. Mm -hmm. For sure. So the last story in here, I find really interesting. This really perked my interest. It's called The Fear, but it does not take place in the series that we know of today. It takes place in Star Trek Phase 2. And my first thought was, wait, did they do a Waypoint comic based on the fan film Phase 2 or like, are they going to start doing like Star Trek continues or something like that? And then I realized, <laughs> oh no, they're re- they're going back to Phase Two, which the the fan series is based on. The Phase Two that was being developed in the seventies after the original series, they're going to do a second series featuring Kirk and crew without Spock because Leonard Nimoy at the time wasn't going to join the show. But Paramount was looking to launch a new TV network, the Paramount Television Network, and they were going to launch it with Star Trek Phase 2. It basically was going to be the next five-year mission of Kirk and crew, which then got abandoned and morphed into Star Trek The Motion Picture, which then Mm -hmm. Leonard Nimoy did join. But anyway, we get a story that takes place in what would have been this second Star Trek series of Star Trek Phase 2. And the uniforms are very similar to what we saw in the original series, but the Delta Shield has the circle around it like the uniforms had in the motion picture. So some of the concepts of this come from the designs that they were doing for this new series and also has the refit Enterprise in here. So Dan, what Mm would you think about the idea of delving into this uh, series that never got off the ground? This is really cool. I was really excited when I heard that this would be the setting for this story in Waypoint. And yeah, like you say, the Enterprise is completely different. It's that phase two design that kind of in between the TOS Enterprise and the refit from the movies. And you've got the character of Zahn in here, uh, who was originally cast in phase two, um, David Gautreaux. I think that's how you Gautreaux. I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name, but you may remember seeing him in the motion picture as Commander Branch, the, the commanding officer of Epsilon 9, but he was originally supposed to play the, the sort of Spock replacement. And of course, Will Decker as the first officer, and you get a few glimpses of Lieutenant Ilea at the helm as well. So, you know, really, really cool stuff. I love the Phase 2 concept. And the fact that they, they crafted this story in that setting is, is really, really great. To me, the most fun aspect of this was exploring those ideas of that supposedly Phase 2 would have. And I always kind of thought of Commander Zahn as just being like, oh, we got to replace Spock with another Vulcan. Let's, you know, carbon copy him and, and have another character. But this story does a good job of separating him from Spock and showing how, like in the show, that might have been an interesting plot point is this young Vulcan trying to fill the shoes of Spock and Kirk not quite trusting him the same way he did Spock. And also the fact that he's a full Vulcan versus a half Vulcan comes into play as well, which is really cool. And he's a full full Vulcan that wants to explore emotions, which isn't really addressed Mm -hmm. in this comic, but that was the concept behind the character, which was later used for data in the next generation so it is interesting how a half vulcan half human is trying to suppress emotion and a full vulcan was trying to explore human emotions and and that would have been the concept behind that so yeah i don't want to get 
too far in the story because you know we want to move on to the feature but it does involve the Romulans, and we have another monster. We, we like monsters in, in this issue. <laughs> <laughs> and again, the very Star Trek premise comes into play with this one as well, where Zahn is convincing others, you know, don't just shoot it. We need to communicate with it. And, you know, a very Star Trek philosophy that's kind of a little bit of connective tissue between these two stories. Yeah, I would say this whole issue is a definite read. It's it's a good way to go out on Waypoint 6, but it makes me want more. And it also makes me want, want more of the Phase 2. I'd like to see more with Zahn. I, I got mm-hmm. into his character to the point that I wanted to learn more about him. Yeah, and I, I wasn't... I The same for me, and I wasn't expecting that at all. So definite bonus here for sure. All right, so two thumbs up for Waypoint 6, and you're going out on a positive note. We hope to see you come back for Waypoint 7. Wouldn't oh, that wouldn't that be uh, great? I would love to see more of these. Yeah, they're a lot of fun. Um, very interesting stories. Also, why don't we move on to another comic? And now we're going into Mere Broken number three. Finally, this one has come out. It's taken a while because the art takes a good amount of time to do because J.K. Woodward puts a lot of time into the art in these comics. So it really takes a while. So we're a little delayed on number three, but I think it's worth the wait. You know what? I think something else is worth the wait. I think it's worth the wait to have Amy Nelson finally join us here on Literary Treks 201. Amy, how are you doing today? I am doing great. Thank you so much for having me on again, and especially when we get to talk about Broken Mirror, my favorite comic book. Amy, were were you there the whole time? Did you just decloak? What's going on here? I didn't even see you there. (laughs) Yes, I am decloaking and getting ready for the TNG comic book. Ah, okay. (laughs) Well, this is Amy's favorite comic book because... This series is her first comic my book only. that she's ever read. <laughs> it's her only one. <laughs> well, that's why we have you here to talk about Broken Mirror, because you were on initially on our show when we talk about, ta- talked about issue zero, which was part of Free Comic Book Day. And then we did issue one on that same episode. And then issue two came out and you were on with that. And now here we are with issue three. And it's perfect timing because you've also been doing the Q Continuum features that we've been doing and we're doing that on today's show so amy your your timing between the comics and the novels is working out perfectly how did you do that it's impeccable it's like i had empathic thoughts going into this i think you might secretly be a q (laughs) but maybe i shouldn't have said that out loud i might be on to you (laughs) well let's go ahead and dive into this and it starts off on the iss enterprise d shuttle bay And we see our smiling Commander Riker there in the Mirror Universe welcoming the new captain of the Enterprise-D, and that is Captain Jellico. And yes, everyone on the crew is just as excited as we are that Jellico is there. (laughs) It's so funny because when Jellico, his like first comment is like, Crewman, your uniform isn't ironed. And we all know Jellicoe put Troy into her uniform. And so it's still, it's bringing back that funny. I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> well, what do you guys think of Jellicoe as a character anyway? Not just in this comic, but just in general. Do you like him uh, or do you not like him? Well, I have to say, 
<laughs> when I was a kid, I hated Jellicoe because you're supposed to hate Jellicoe, right? He comes in and messes everything up and, and, oh, he's just a jerk. Watching him as an adult, I get so mad at Riker. Like that, oh my God, so unprofessional. You've got a new captain whose requests don't actually seem all that unreasonable. And when Riker can't get things done, he doesn't tell Jellico, and, you know, Jellico has to find out later. And, oh man, as an adult, those episodes make Riker look really bad. And, uh, you know, I probably wouldn't enjoy serving under Jellico, and I probably would never consider him a friend. But uh, I don't think he's the boogeyman that a lot of people think he is in Star Trek. So Agreed. I think when, you know, it first came on, yeah, we're supposed to not like him because we have such ties to Picard and we're loyal to Picard and Riker. And so then when Jellicoe comes on, you're like, oh, I hate him. But then, yeah, take a step back 30 years later. You know, it's just a different command style and what lessons we learn and how do we react to change because change is going to happen. And Jellico is a great captain. I agree. Yeah, I agree with both of you. And sometimes there's been some novels where he's written to be even more of a jerk than I think he really should be portrayed. <laughs> uh, and then there's the New Frontier novels where he has a prominent place in that. And at first, he doesn't get along with Captain Calhoun, but really he comes to a point later where he actually likes him and respects him. So you see some character growth with him in those novels. But what I find funny about this issue is he's probably more like he is in the Prime Universe. He's The Mirror counterpart is exactly the same. I think you could pluck him out of the Prime <laughs> Universe, put him in the Mirror Universe, and everybody would say, yeah. He's the same guy. I don't see anything different about him. He's just very by the book and he's just following the rules and running a right uh, and commanding a tight ship. Yeah, definitely. Kind of makes me wonder if like the the more extreme personalities are actually closer to their their alternate selves. Oh, interesting point. <laughs> yeah. I wonder what like the the all the admirals in Next Generation, what their mirror universe counterparts are They'd like. They'd be the same. Or, or, or yeah, maybe, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe they're actually really meek, nice, quiet people, <laughs> but definitely not the case with Jellico. They're very similar. For well, sure. I know that's the approach they were taking with this is not changing the characters too much. It's basically the same characters we see in the next generation. They're just in the mere universe. And so their situations are different. It's not like all of a sudden it's just mean and angry Picard. It's Picard in this situation. And he may be more mm -hmm. of a jerk because of the situation, but he's still Picard. And I think throughout this, that works. I feel like I, they, all the characters in my opinion sound like they do on the next generation. They're just the mirror universe and it's a different situation. It's like a reimagining, taking a different approach to the next generation. It's, and it, it, like, for example, Beverly Crusher sounds like Beverly Crusher to me. Yeah. They're just, they're their normal selves, but the product of this different society and it's different mores and, and rules and, and the society and, and how it's, how it 
functions, basically. Well, and Wesley, case in point, you know, here he's saying, okay, (laughs) well, I've analyzed and I ran the numbers and we really need to stick with Picard. And I've looked at all the data and looked at all the, you know, this is the best crew for the job. And like he did all of his analysis that we know Wesley to do. And he's so thorough. And here he is doing it in the mirror universe. And he's Mm -hmm. got that funky black spiky hair. He is the character that doesn't look anything like the actor. Like, what's up with that? I think he looks like Will Wheaton. Just when? Just with when when Will Wheaton when Will Wheaton went out on a Friday night and just got loose and crazy. <laughs> exactly. He found Riker's holodeck programs. He really shouldn't yes. have. And uh, yeah, we don't talk about that. He had kind of a, a rough patch there. Uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about Deanna Troy. I, no, <laughs> I'm kidding. Did anybody else kill themselves laughing in kind of a nervous laughter way at this transporter room scene? She says, who's the transporter chief? He's like, I am. What are you? Who the hell are you? And, you know, gets phasers out, phasered out of existence. Then she says, I'll try again. Who's the transporter chief? That was classic. And the guy says, um, you are definitely you. So And that grin she has. She's like, so much oh, it's better. It's so great. Oh, and the close-up, I mean, the artwork there was very beautiful. You could tell that was Deanna Troy. It was very beautiful. I paused and looked at that a little bit longer. That was a good art there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, all the art's good. We were talking on the other side of the page. Which is a weird thing to say, the other side of the page. But I mean, before the show, we were talking about how the artwork looks, looks a little different. It's the same artist. It's J.K. Woodward. It's just he, it, the painting is taking a long time. And at Star Trek Las Vegas, he had mentioned that he's doing a new approach to it. I think he's using more paint pencils and ink and whatever i mean it it still looks similar but it's a little different because what he's doing now will speed the process up a little faster so we don't have to wait as long for each issue so i just wanted to throw that in there that you may see a little difference between this issue compared to the other uh issues that we saw in this series but yeah like you say it's still outstanding artwork there's so many little moments in this story that He's just paused on and captured perfectly. I think for me, it's a very small panel on the page, but when Picard first settles into the chair of the Enterprise D after having captured it, spoiler alert, I suppose, and he says, well, this is an improvement. And just the satisfied look on his face as he settles into the chair. Again, it's it's a very small part of the whole page, but it's just gorgeous. And the the amount of attention and time and, you know, precise detail that goes into each uh, little piece of art throughout this book is just amazing. I love it. One thing that I found interesting was when Data pulls Riker aside and says, listen, if you've got grandiose ideas now that you've been entrusted and now you're second in command and this power might be going to your head, you know, don't try anything. I thought, hmm, that might be coming up a little bit later because Data was very made sure to let Riker know you better not be doing some kind of power play. So I I like that Mm -hmm. part. And there's there's something about cold, emotionless Data threatening someone that is 
really scary. Like when Riker says, what the hell kind of android are you? And his answer is chilling. He cocks his head to the side and says to Riker, I'm still discovering that for myself, Commander Riker. Test me and we will both find out together. Mm -hmm. I'm just like, whoa, damn. Nope. It's so (laughs) dangerous. At the same time, it probably sounds so innocent when he says it that it's scary. He's like the Chucky of Star Wars. Star Trek in here. It's well, like, then he's got that Borg arm, so yeah, it's scary. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, saying, you know what, Amy? What a great series to start reading comics because I have to say this is probably my favorite Star Trek series of the year so far, and it's getting better each issue. David Tipton, Scott Tipton are the writers. They all they've written tons of Star Trek comics. This is top game. I'm loving this. I can't wait to issue number four. How do you guys feel about the series so far? Definitely. I was actually going to say something similar that I'm I'm kind of envious of Amy that this is the first comic series that you've gotten to read because, yeah, wow, like it's great. <laughs> well, aren't they all this good? This is in my mind. They're oh. all great. And look at what I've been missing all these years. We'll we'll find I'll I'll give you a list of back episodes of literary treks to listen to, uh, where there have been some comics that are, uh, let's say they they fall a little short of the mark that this one has established. So. Well, we've had several uh, decades of comics, and the very first comic run was Gold <laughs> Key, which is somewhat hilarious. Those were published. Gosh, when did those start? Did it happen in the early? I mean, in the late sixties, or did it just start in the seventies? It was somewhere on that. It, it happened during the series run, right? I think so. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they they started during the series run. And basically, (laughs) the writers and artists had based like a kind of write up about what the show was about and some publicity photos and told here, make a comic. And, you know, they're unique and they're fun. But the first few stories they're not Star Trek. (laughs) Yeah. Like there's some, if you dig through the comics history of Star Trek, there are some really weird diversions and back alleys you can find yourself in and you will be coming out of them going, what the heck was that? Yeah. And we've reviewed, reviewed some of them on the show and we have volume four coming up in the near future too. So we'll be getting back to the Golki comics, but more recent comics, the Tiptons have written a lot of Star Trek comics, including this. And so there's a lot of good ones out there. They're good authors. Definitely. Well, I'm glad to be starting to read these comics, and I owe it all to you two for getting me started. So thank you for choosing the right one just for me. <laughs> well, don't come crawling back to us and, and, and yelling at us when you encounter the bickering Bickleys in your oh comics God. travels. So, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's something totally different. We'll have to go into that offline sometime with you. <laughs> <laughs> so Q Strike is the third book in the Q Continuum series that came out in the 90s and written by Greg Cox. And Amy Nelson has been on each of the episodes of this book and now we're on the last one. And hey Amy, I think it's great you got through all 3. Well, sort of if you want to play it like that. Wait, what? Oh, I have to apologize. I couldn't quite finish it. I have much respect for the two of you who are able to read these books so thoroughly and so quickly. I really, I got through as much as I can and I'm ready to contribute. 
And I, yeah, but I have to be honest with you and with the listeners. Um, I didn't quite get to the end on this one. That's okay. But you do plan on finishing it, right? Absolutely. It's right next to my bed. It's right on my bed stand, ready to go. Yep. Just need the time. Well, because you started back to school, your teacher, and uh, you're busy again. So it's hard to fit in the time to do the novels. Plus, you're doing other shows. You're like all over Trek FM. Well, yeah, the big thing. um, Yes, I did start teaching and that has consumed quite a bit of time. I was at Star Trek Las Vegas, which consumed even more amount of time. And rub it in. (laughs) (laughs) And I've been uh, learning to edit a couple of uh, episodes of Earl Grey and then, of course, being on the edge. So this book time frame that I had to read really was uh, curtailed by those things. I mean, the previous ones, I was on Mazatlan, on the beach, doing nothing but reading. So it was all good. But this book came at a difficult time. Yeah, but you've read some of it. You're just, you haven't finished it, but you've read a good amount of it. I have. I've read a majority, I would say. As a math teacher, I could say a majority. (laughs) That means over 50%. That is correct. (laughs) So (laughs) 50.5% would be a majority. That's about (laughs) accurate. (laughs) But enough that we can actually have this discussion uh, about uh, this third book. And so we'll kind of go into the we'll do the non-spoilers first and then we'll get into more spoilers and if amy wants to leave during that point that's fine but i really don't think there's any big spoilers in this book dan what do you think i would tend to agree i we talked a little bit on the other side of the page Uh, you know the the biggest spoiler of course for the end of the story would kind of be the stereotypical and they all lived happily ever after but that's kind of the hallmark of star trek novels in the nineties, you know, it was play with the toys, have some fun with them, but put them all back on the shelf or in the toy box when you're done as they were when you found them kind of thing. So, you know, that that's kind of par for the course for these novels. There's nothing huge earth shattering galaxy shattering that, uh, you know, that is kind of any kind of changed state at the end of this story. And we're well into the story too, because I mean, you gotta think this is the third book. So, in actuality, we've already discussed two thirds of the story. So, Amy, you're more mm-hmm. than majority read. Yeah. And it's funny you say that because right from the beginning, like it starts going into the big war that was leading up to in book two. And so I'm like, oh my gosh. And then when the war ended, I was like, well, wait a minute, there's way more book left. This can't, you know, so I'm sort of glad to hear that, that I actually did read the war part and that was amazing. I'm sure we're going to talk about it, but yeah. So we got the plot and everything comes to a head as the reason behind Q's revelations is being made apparent that nil or zero, whatever. Or Neil. (laughs) No, don't do that to me now. He said it right the first time. Don't jinx him. This is the first of the three books that every time I got to that character, I heard Nil in my head. Good. So Nil resides on the other side of the galactic barrier. That one that we saw in um, Where No Man Has Gone Before episode of the original series. And then we have Lem Fowles experiments that threaten to release him. And so, you know, that's 
kind of where we were left in book two, that whole setup. And now we're still dealing with that, the cracks in the barrier and, and Neil wanting to break through like, you know, the spider trying to get through the cracks of a board or something like that. And surprise, Mm -hmm. surprise, he gets out. I didn't see that coming. Oh my gosh. I didn't see that coming. No, I did. What'd you guys think of that? Like, what what do you think of Nil? Is he an interesting character? Do you really care? <laughs> That's kind of one of the good things about this story is having two books to set up the threat, you know, before unleashing it on the galaxy in the third book. You know, I, I really came to dread Nil and what he represents and what he can do. You know, I feel like if this were one book or one episode or even one movie you know, it might not quite be enough for me to like, oh man, this, this creature threatening everybody. I, I'm, you know, it wouldn't really have the impact that I think that it has here. We've had this backstory and then the hints of him, you know, on the other side of the barrier, trying to break through and, and also going insane on top of it. You know, he really, to me was um, a, a good threat and a really interesting antagonist. I might have to not agree wholeheartedly. So my question was like, what, why was he so interested in causing harm and damage and destruction wherever he went? Like, what's his backstory? I don't relate to him for that reason. Cause I don't know why is he so evil? Why is he so mean? Why is he so destructive? Like I couldn't relate to him. So I didn't feel sorry for him. I didn't have any feelings for him. Cause I'm like, that's just made up. You know what I mean? I mean, I got to know him, but I didn't know why. Yeah. What's his motivation behind doing all this stuff? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Dan, that is a very you, good You question. have the answer because I don't. <laughs> Dan Neil Gunther. I, yeah, I mean, I, I do obviously like it when uh, antagonists have really good motivation. I mean, Gul Dukat is just the greatest villain because, you know, even though you don't agree with him, you understand his motivation and you see where he's coming from, even though it's, you know, a totally twisted view. But for me, Nil was just kind of an agent of chaos, kind of, you know, how Q was viewed in the early seasons of TNG. And yeah, it's true. There's, there's not a lot of motivation given there, but just the, the danger that he represented, I found really interesting, maybe not so much as a well-rounded fleshed out character, but as a force of nature that had to be overcome, you know, it was threatening enough that, I actually did fear what the effects of of him coming into our galaxy would be. But as far as motivation or understanding his point of view, to me, that felt secondary to the threat that he represented. Yeah, I, I can agree with that for sure. What I found most interesting about this book for me was it almost seemed biblical that this was the creation of the universe and how the universe evolves. And it evolves around nil and Q and other forces that are portrayed and represented to us as if they are humans with powers. And the book points out several times that we may see Q, he may look human, 
but he's not. That's just the version that we're seeing that we can relate to. It's as if his force, his being in the universe is something that we can't maybe see because we can't relate to it. It's an image that doesn't exist in the eye of a human that we can't visualize that. So we visualize a human aspect of Q and of Nil and so on and so forth that I started to really look at these characters less as being human and more of being just forces of the universe. And so there's positive and there's negative and sometimes maybe there's the in-between. And I just looked at it. It's like the universe is working itself out. And it's playing through these characters and these continuums. And it's not necessarily the will of what we can relate to as humans, but as a will of the force of the universe forming itself and shaping itself. And so the motivation I saw behind Nil wasn't as a human character and what's motivating him and if he's evil, but it's just the negative force of the universe that's working against other aspects to form how the galaxy is going to come about as it is that we see today. That Did I lose you on is that? <laughs> very deep. Oh my goodness. And I love it. I mean, there is an opposite and equal reaction to everything. You've got your light, you've got your dark. So the motivation doesn't, when you put it like that, you don't need the motivation. So if you're looking at it as, the Q being the light and nil being the dark, then they are just an existence and that they are in opposition one to another. That's pretty deep there, Bruce. I'm looking at this a whole yeah. new way. <laughs> Whoa, man. Cool. Whoa. Did I just say that, man? I don't know what I was saying. I'm just sitting here smoking in the corner. <laughs> Keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's totally an interesting take. And and I really like that idea. I actually very recently rewatched All Good Things. And I just wow, man, what an amazing 2 hours of television. I love that final episode of TNG. And that scene what what made me rewatch it actually was reading this book and it brought to mind that scene at the end with Q and Picard in the courtroom. And, and Q is saying to Picard, you know, like Q says, you know, that's what, that's what it's all about is not charting stars and mapping nebula, but charting the unknown possibilities of existence. And Picard says, Q, what is it you're trying to tell me? And Q leans in like he's going to say something and says, you'll find out. And I just, I, there's some, there's something about that view of Q that he's, and, and the rest of the continuum is something greater, is something mysterious and other that is just really compelling that I feel like the Voyager episodes with Q kind of got away from a little bit where he's more just the comic relief and the impish being kind of thing. But that that idea that there's something transcendent about them that defies understanding is just and that those are the feelings that this book really brought out in me. So I, I love that you put it that way, Bruce. That was perfect. Well, and we get to learn in the book, like why Q has this, and it's always been said, a fascination, you know, well, it's his steward, you know, we are his steward. He was given us, you know, to take care of for his punishment type of thing. And so you can see, well, when I read that, I was like, 
you know, Q's arrogant and, you know, wants to do everything the best. And so if he is in charge of us, then he's going to make sure that we get to the place that we need to, like he was with the Tacon uh, empire that, you know, he wanted them to be successful and he wants us earthlings to be successful and to reach that next level more so because we would be under his tutelage. So any success that we have is a reflection on him. That's sort of how I took that. Yeah. And it almost sounds like we're talking about God and I'm not, I'm not saying that Q is God at all or any of these characters. The universe is not so badly designed as Picard said. (laughs) Well, that was pretty good. (laughs) Freaked me out for a second there. Is that the mirror Picard? I don't know. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, we're always being tested, whether it's God or the continuum nature or whatever. I mean, it there's in some ways, and I like to think that it's so beyond our comprehensive, comprehension that we can even put it all together but there's some connection between all this these things in the universe and and how we're being tested and and how we're being evaluated in our humanity and how it plays out and and why why is the enterprise always at the center of all this why is it q always (laughs) going to the enterprise and and i'm just i'm racking my brains right now because i'm a little tired but didn't we just read something recently dan that the there's a reason why the enterprise is always the center it's always been set up that way do you remember that oh that was uh i, I know they mentioned it in q square so it was this book uh, trelane oh no q no, square it, it was the peter david book yeah. uh trelane mentioning that uh, but again they didn't really explain it they just said he created all these temporal anomalies and for some reason the enterprise just happened upon them all the time yeah there's like some um, force there's something about the enterprise that's always being linked to these things it's like set mm-hmm. up. I think it's it's because the ship it's the ship that people are writing about. Right. But, oh, I just I accidentally stepped outside Don't of the universe that. there for a second. <laughs> I'll put you in My the bad. galactic barrier for that. <laughs> What's the terms for that? The the uh, Watsonian versus uh, Doyle Doyleist style. So Watsonian is in universe. You're, it's from the perspective of John Watson writing about Sherlock Holmes and Doyleist is the outside of the universe perspective where it's Arthur Conan Doyle writing about Watson, writing about Sherlock Holmes. Right. So I accidentally jumped out to a Doyleist perspective and I, I, I should have been staying in a Watsonian perspective. <laughs> Whew. Okay. Boy. I, I used to be an English teacher. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's why I don't like to talk on this show. I feel like I'm being judged. Like my English teacher is like, so Bruce, what did you think of the book? Well, give us your oral book report right now. <laughs> You're definitely not being judged, but if you were, it would be appropriate because we're talking about a Q book. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but you're not. Okay. All right. Well, that that did get a little deep, right? I, maybe we'll move on to some other things. <laughs> so Lem Fowl and his kids. Oh my gosh. This guy drives me freaking nuts. Now, what's what I like about this is the connection to where no man has gone before that episode where we're near the galactic barrier and Neil is that entity behind the galactic barrier that's kind of seeping his way through and he creates that superpower we saw like in Gary Mitchell and now it's being infected into Lem Fow to kind of carry out his duties for him. But, you know, Fow is really a jerk to his kids and he's got... A younger girl that we don't really see that much of because she's young, but his older son, 
uh, I think it was Milo, he keeps reaching out to his father and his father keeps ignoring him until the point where the female Q shows up and she's going to attack Fowl because he's nil and nil's going to destroy the universe so and so forth. And finally, Fowl acknowledges his son and says, boy, oh, why don't you help me destroy this Q entity so that we can continue on what we need to do? I acknowledge you now. And, and Milo's like, yeah, dad, you finally recognize me. I'm finally here. And, and, and you want me to do something for you? Yeah, I'm all there for you, dad. It's like, finally, finally, finally. But Milo starts to realize later that, you know what? He's just using me. And I mean, what a, this guy is a terrible dad. Just awful. Understatement of the year. Yeah. Lemfall. I, it's the one thing that just to me really stuck with me. It was so heartbreaking. Uh, you know, the, the relationship is just, you know, what, what little tiny bit of that relationship was there is just completely destroyed. And I mean, I know he's under the influence of, you know, the, the nil whatever his energy and stuff but at the same time you know it's it's him too you know it's not just all blamed on this the the ultimate you know severing of this important relationship is just to me the most heartbreaking part of this story now amy did you get to this part of the book that we just mentioned that female q steps in yeah you can really tell lemfall is not the parent of the year when he's getting these powers, they're seeping in, seeping in. And then he, you know, and he wakes up in sick bay and he sees his children still under, you know, cause they had to be put under cause of the mental strain and stuff from being in the barrier. And he leaves them and he has a second thought of, Oh, these are my children but then walks away. And I thought, oh my gosh, how can you do that? And just leave your children and feel that your purpose is more important. And, and I do understand that he was under the influence of Neil at that point, but even throughout the two previous books, he was not good to his children. So this was just more an amplification of his bad parenting. And it was very sad. I I like what you said about him being under the influence of Nil, because it reminded me so much of Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, of Cybok being under the influence of the being behind the center of the universe, Shakari and all that stuff. Because Mm -hmm. I don't really understand in Star Trek V, and I recently read the novelization, why Cybok was led to the galactic barrier or to the center of the universe to, for, to this being. And I think it was hinted out that hinted that, you know, with his psychic abilities, he's there were this creature is able to reach out through the universe and connect with him and kind of pull him towards him. And I feel like that's the same kind of story thread we're getting with Nil reaching out to Lem Fow, who is a betazoid and also pulling him towards him. So I feel like, and and of course we see the character, the energy being the one from the final frontier in this book. He is part of the storyline. So I I feel like Greg Cox is playing with the idea of what was set up in, in five 
in Star Trek V and trying to explain some of that and work that storyline into this. And again, mm-hmm. it's like these two barriers reaching out beyond to those that kind of pull them in so that they themselves can be pulled out of the barrier and into our universe. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense for sure. So there was that I, that part of it was really interesting to me. Um, and I really wish we would have seen the being in the center of the universe come and join them and do something, but we never really got to that. But it, yeah, I don't know. It was just quite interesting. But then we get to the whole thing with Milo and Milo also gets these powers, but he doesn't become really bad. So it just shows me that whatever's going on deep down inside you is the worst of you is going to come out. And if you're pure and innocent, like I think Milo is, he didn't have the the evil inside of him to do something bad. Yeah, like Lem Fall, where his, those powers amplified what a bad father he was because it was already there. Yeah, and all he's interested in is being immortal. Like, that's the promise he's given is immortality. But, I mean, really? Is that important to you to live forever and ignore your children? I read, as a parent, I would die for my children, not the other way around. I wouldn't give, mm-hmm. I wouldn't abandon my children just to be immortal. I, 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 I don't even understand that. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's already, this to me, the promise of immortality always annoys me because he's already made so many bad decisions in the short life that he has, the relatively short, like, is really immortality going to be any better? You're just going to, you're just going to piss more people off. I mean, that, that, that's really what's going to happen. Yeah. I just wonder if he became immortal. Does he think then he's going to go back to his kids and say, okay, now I'm here for you. I finished what I needed to do it was a big project. I'm sorry I ignored you, but now I'm here for you. And now you will grow old and I'll watch you die as an old, as an old man and as an old woman. I'll continue to live on, but let's make the best of these years that we have left with each other. I mean, come on, you know, ugh, jerk. And do you think that like the powers that Neil was entreating him with that that's was sort of like a drug to him that he just continued and I need more, I need more. And here's this promise. And I am, I mean, because he did, he turned away everything. And in part, I think he was at a weak moment. I don't know how long he'd been working on this galactic barrier scenario But, you know, when the wife died and left the kids, like that was that turning point. And do you think that that's when Neil reached out to him with that promise of now you're most vulnerable? I'm going to promise you immortality. I'm going to entreat you to, you know, come to the galactic barrier and and let me in. It's definitely possible. I mean, um, it's it's a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason, you know, absolute or sorry, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. You know, it's, it is something that like, I, I certainly want to, wouldn't want to be tempted with absolute power and immortality and all that kind of stuff, because no one can really answer how they'll, they'll react. And it is possible. It's something you would crave more and more and probably by design, like that's, that's how they, that's how he gets you, you know? And, uh, 
So, I mean, Lem Fall in some respects is definitely a victim, but he's a victim I'm not feeling a lot of sympathy for by the end of this book, unfortunately. But yeah, no, I just, ugh. Yeah. So awful. They're kids. They're kids. Come on. <laughs> well, it is almost, I guess, like addiction. You know, it's like if somebody mm-hmm. is an alcoholic or addicted to drugs and they ignore their children or they abuse them because they're just not themselves. So maybe you're right. Maybe it's just he's not himself because he's so addicted to what's been promised to him and it's just taken over his life and it's become an obsession that he can't even see straight in front of him. He's He may have been a good father before all this. I mean, I didn't get the impression from Milo that his dad was always like this. This is a recent thing. That's true, yeah. So, speaking of family, we have the Q family. We have Papa Q, Mama Q, and Baby Q. You know, it reminds me of the 80s. There was a Plastic Man cartoon. They had Baby Plaz. (laughs) I don't know why. It just makes me think that. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Anyway... So, Dan, I want to ask you about the relationship among the Q, because you have some thoughts behind that. Well, I, I found it really interesting, you know, the idea of this Q family unit. And, you know, it's it's something that we learned in Voyager. You know, no Q has had a child for however long. Like, it's just not something that, that they're used to. So it's really cool that you have this this mother, father, and child family dynamic going on and how each of them fits into that is really interesting. And to me, the the woman Q and her relationship with the infant Q, I loved that. I loved how protective she was over her baby Q. And to me, and and although this is a sentiment that I think the Q would would be really annoyed at me for for saying, I felt that it really humanized them and really gave them a, a really human quality and made me empathize with them you know in a way that I wouldn't otherwise the Q like we've talked about earlier are so beyond like they're so hard to wrap your mind around that you know seeing them in something very familiar and something that's very understandable is a really great way to make you as a reader empathize with them and care about what happens. And I I just, I loved that relationship between all three of them in this story. It really, uh, it's a unique concept that I really like that Greg Cox was able to explore it a bit, explore it a little bit here. I thought the family dynamic was interesting. I could have used more of it, actually. I felt we had a lot of Mm -hmm. Mama Q and Baby Q together a lot. And Papa Q was off doing something with Papa Picard. And <laughs> and the cat's in the cradle with the silk. Oh, oh, I sang. <laughs> All right, we're getting there. It's good. One too many Diet Pepsis. <laughs> ah, darn it. Yep. <laughs> Found my limit. I got to I gotta get cut off now. <laughs> but I, I also was a little confused more at the beginning of this novel and even in some of the others where we see the younger Q when we see the Q we know when he's younger and the female Q is there and she seemed older like she seemed like she is now to me while he was younger like was she a younger Q or was she the Q we know today and I I got a little confused what were your what'd you think about that Amy did that how did you picture them she's the Q (laughs) 
She's, she's the cougar, the cougar Q. <laughs> I, that's how I saw it. So yeah, because you know when they're fighting off the nil and the one and stuff. So yeah, she was like taking the lead and and so to me, like her expertise, her knowledge, her pers- perceptive perception of everything, like to me, put her in the older, wiser category compared to the young. Uh, you know, just do anything younger cue that we know. So that was interesting to see those two hook up that, oh, this is the, you know, cue and woman cue and baby cue. I was like, oh, wait a minute. She's a lot older. But what is time when you're living forever, right? See, I got the impression, I and this was just me, that that she that they were kind of contemporaries and maybe not maybe not kids, but like, you know, early twenties and that kind of thing. And the, the woman queue just had the added advantage of, uh, you know, being the smarter of the two sexes. Well, females do (laughs) mature quicker than males. Exactly. And that's kind of what I thought was, was she was the, the good influence in Q's life that if he would have, you know, turned that way and, you know, she was a little bit more, um, you know, less impulsive than Q that we know and a little bit more uh, attuned to the way things really are and that sort of thing and and smarter and more mature. I, I didn't think she was a lot older, but um, I, I'd actually almost want to reread it again with that perspective because I hadn't thought of that. I was just like, oh, man, he's he's just an Im- immature, bumbling idiot. And he needs to listen to the woman Q over here, <laughs> who's, you know, a lot smarter than him. But I, 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 it's interesting, the the age idea, I hadn't thought of that. I like that we see baby Q now older on Voyager. And I know this novel wasn't planned mm-hmm. necessarily around that, but it just works out so perfect that we know that the Q's having a baby. We see the baby in the novel and then Voyager, we see the baby when he's older and he's, you know, this, this kid who's like whatever, 10 years old or whatever it is. So I, I kind of like that connection. It's worth rewatching that episode, which I can't think of the name right now. Q2. Yes. Q2. Of course. And interestingly enough, Q's son is played by Keegan Delancey, John Delancey's actual son. Um, I don't know who plays the infant Q at the end of the Q and the Grey episode, though. But there's a really cute picture that I actually have on my uh, review of this episode. It's a screen cap from that episode with Q holding the baby Q and and waving bye-bye to Aunt Kathy as they they flash out. (laughs) So... Yeah, it's really cool that that this trilogy of books sticks itself in between the Q and the Grey and Q2. So we get that kind of continuity of of Q's son. Q Q and Q's son, I guess. Q. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, drinking game. Every time we say Q, you have to take a shot. Um. (laughs) (laughs) I think we'd all be singing sea shanties at this point, but... (laughs) well let's go into the end of this book spoiler alert that's our sound effect uh amy you want to stick around for it are you gonna head out i do no i would like to hear the ending so go for it tell me what happens so troy dies 
<laughs> Don't even mess with me, Bruce. Not funny. Because she is... So I stopped reading and like her and Milo and the daughter, they're still under. So there could be complications. Are there? Oh, uh, not really. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel like there's any big, huge spoiler or any big reveal or anything. I, I guess for me, Neil is gone, but not really. I thought Neil was basically dead but it sounds like neil's back behind the galactic barrier so we're back to kind of where we started what i did like is the calamarine and q kind of merged together as one to defeat Neil. that they've picard steps in in his diplomatic way and shows the calamarine that they need to team with q that they have a common enemy and the calamarine go into q and Q has more increased powers, I guess, double it because he's got the Calamarine in him. That to me, that part I, I felt was the most Star Trek aspect of this novel. If you think of Star Trek as being, you know, the ideal of diplomacy and, and nonviolence and that sort of thing, even though they're teaming up to, you know, attack an enemy. But at the same time, that that conflict between Q and the Enterprise and the Calamarine and all of that is resolved in a really, a very Star Trek-y way, if that makes sense. It wasn't like, whoa, I didn't see that coming or, oh, wow, that blew me away. It just, it, it ended like it should have ended. Like Dan said earlier, you got, you know, put all the pieces back and it just kind of did that. I don't know. It's not that I didn't like the book. It's just, it just didn't have anything that really, I think what I, I got more of is more in the middle of the book or two thirds of the way in the book, more with the whole Lem Fowl and Troy and the family and the lady cute, like all that just kind of seemed to play of more interest to me than how the book ended. Yeah, it is. It is kind of the, you know, the stereotypical two great forces coming together to fight, you know all that kind of stuff. There is that little bit of cliched aspect to it for sure. And of course, like we've said, it, it has to end the way it does. You know, we can't, we can't kill Q or destroy the enterprise or kill any of the main characters. You know, it's yeah, it, it ends the way you'd expect it ends, which like you said, Bruce, isn't a bad thing. Like I came away from this very satisfied and, uh, I really enjoyed the story, but yeah, it's, it's, um, what what needs to happen happens. And it really could use a follow-up book because I think Picard learns so much more about Q that he has a different perspective on him. And even what we see at the end of this book, there's a spear that is being aimed to to penetrate into Q's heart. And Picard is holding that spear and trying to pull it away. And Picard even says, I can't believe out of all these times I can like get rid of Q and if anything I'm trying to save him <laughs> and it's kind of this you know I can't stand the guy but now that I've got to know him and I know what's right I'm I'm doing the opposite of what I thought I would do years ago and so the relationship between the two have changed and it would just be interesting to see novels that play off of this and have a different relationship between Picard and Q. And maybe we've gotten some of those in the novels. I haven't thought about it because I haven't read those since I've read this. But uh, 
it's definitely a growing relationship between the two. I might have brought this up on an earlier literary trek. I can't remember, but there's a there's a story in one of the Strange New Worlds anthologies that involves Q. And I really love the setup. Basically, Q shows up on the bridge of the Enterprise and he's all bloodied and bruised and damaged and Picard says, "Q, what's going on?" and and uh and Q says, "The Borg have started to assimilate the continuum." And he's like, oh, my God. And he's like, this is what I've been preparing you for, Picard. We thought you would be the one. We thought you would you could defeat the Borg. We, you know, all everything I've done, I've done to, you know, shape things and mold things and, and get you ready. And I, I, I love stories that that take that adversarial relationship and put a different spin on it. And, you know, that's when, you know, this story ends on that note with with the the relationship being completely subverted from what we've seen in the in the television series, which is a lot of fun for sure. Okay, Amy, I know you haven't finished the book, but I'm going to ask for kind of two ratings from you. What do you think of the book so far? And what do you think of the three book series at this point? All right. Well, I enjoy, I have enjoyed reading it. Um, the thought always is in the back of my mind. However, um, when Dan said last time when we were talking Q continuum that the the last the two books really could have been condensed down to one. And I sort of see that as especially when I hear you talking about the rest, the ending of the book, where it's like, yeah, but probably could have, you know, been condensed a little bit. So um I so far, I'm going to give it um, a 7 out of 10, but I really enjoy reading this. That background that we get to know Q in his younger Q is amazing. The family dynamics of the Q, woman Q and baby Q, amazing. Um, and then, like you mentioned, seeing that dynamic between Q and Picard is really cool. And seeing other... Uh, enemies out there, you know, beyond the galactic barrier and the creativity of creating the one nil and the other asterisk and the other one, you know, just, I think that that's really creative and gives you other things, a, another enemy besides your Cardassian Romulan, you know, stuff like that, that there's these exterior enemies out there that's not as we know as humanoid, you know? Um, so I really have enjoyed the series and I, I would give it a eight out of 10, eight and a half. No, I'm, I'm raising it to eight and a half. Nice. Eight and <laughs> a half, 8.51. Just, I'm just giving you the one. Okay. Just so that you have a majority of the, of the, the whole number between. There eight you go. And nine. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> All right, Dan, your thoughts. Yeah, I I really enjoy this book. I've I've enjoyed the entire trilogy. Uh I I love the way things wrap up. I I know, you know, I've said through this podcast that, you know, it wraps up kind of by the numbers and that sort of thing. But again, I I don't want that to be a bad thing. I mean, it it's kind of the reality of how these books go. But at the same time, the journey to get to there is interesting and really well written and a lot of fun. And I would love to see Neil again. Like I, I, I know we don't get a lot of his motivation or his backstory as a character as we've discussed, but as a threat, 
he's interesting to me. You know, there's there's something interesting about a force or a threat that's on the level of Q. I mean, that's, you know, whenever Q shows up, he's always so far above anything that they face and he's always in control. So to see that control taken away and him in this vulnerable state is really interesting. And so I would say I would have to give Q strike probably four out of five and the series as a whole, I would rank around there as well. I would say that, yeah, the one problem I would have is, you know, I think this trilogy could probably have been done in two books instead of three, but at the same time, there's not, there's not a lot that I would want to cut out of it, if that makes sense. Uh, so I'm, I'm not sure how much there would be to cut out, but I feel like the individual books themselves were fairly small. Like, I feel like it could have been two books instead of three. So I don't know, but regardless, I, I really enjoyed the trilogy and it's, it's been one, like, like I said, this is now the third time that I've read these books and I, at no point did I go, Oh my God, I've read this before. I want to put it down. I was, I was enthralled even though I knew how it ends and, and I've read it before. So definitely a keeper on my shelf for sure. I would think rereading these books, you'd pick something up that you'd maybe didn't pick up before. Um, definitely for sure. Okay. Yeah. So I, I'm in the same boat. Uh, I can see this being two books. Uh, I could see it maybe just being one big book, one giant book of some kind. I feel like it could be, you know, I, I feel like it's been stretched out a little to get across the three. But that being said, I would think that, gosh, I'm not sure. I would say this book I'd put more at a 3.9. And the series at a 4.1. And the reason I'm saying it that way <laughs> is because I feel that the books are pretty equal. And so the series as a whole is on the same level. But um, I guess I just was really helping a little more from the ending. Something a little more shocking or revealing that I didn't get or that I wanted from it. But on a whole, I'd say all the books are fairly equal to one another, and so the series works. So I, on an average, I'd say, you know, for the series, four out of five, you know, I'd, I'd say it's uh, quadruplets, baby cues. <laughs> <laughs> so, Bruce, because we have a math teacher on the show, I want you to express your two ratings, 3.9 out of 5 and 4.1 out of 5, as fractions with the lowest common denominator between them as whole number fractions. Go. And that ends this episode of Literary Trek. <laughs> I love it. Excellent. <laughs> so since this is the end of Literary Treks, I will let the math teacher go and grade some papers right now. So Amy, where can people find you online and here on the network? Well, you can find me uh, online at uh, on Twitter at Miss Amy Nelson. And I'm in the Babel Conference and you can find me on the network uh, co-hosting Earl Gray with Richard Marquez and Justin Ozer. And you can find me on The Edge, which is our podcast for the new show Discovery. You can find me on The Edge. Is that not the coolest sign-off ever? <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I didn't even think of it. I like that. Yeah. I am on Edge right now. Awesome. Yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, we'll just go ahead and push you off the edge and say, have a good evening. And thank you for joining us through all three of those books. We really appreciate having you here. I truly enjoyed it and would love coming back uh, anytime. Just give me a lot of notice so I have time to read my books. <laughs> I love having Amy on. It's great to have another perspective talking about Star Trek books. The three people on the show talking about a book and different voices each week. I'm I'm really loving having the guest stars and Amy is always a pleasure to have on the show. She is. I've enjoyed having her here and getting to know her more and I'm sure we will see her back on Literary Treks at some point someday. Well, we definitely have to finish off the Mirror Broken series with her. Yes. So. Right. There you go. Right so there. We may be seeing her soon when we do more of the mere broken. And of course you can find her on her other shows as she mentioned. So, you know, she's got those shows. We got our shows. We're doing the novels, but you know, with all this fun and all this talk, it's not the only thing we're talking about here on the network. Here's some other things you'll hear on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM literary treks. Oh, Matthew, I'm doing just fine. You know, it's always fun every week to hop on here and talk Star Trek books and comics with you. And I don't know if you realize this, Matthew, but this is our 200th episode of Literary... Wait a minute, Matthew. We don't host this show anymore. Standard Orbit. Well, I I think everything comes back to the naked time for him, and he just can't get away from swords. Running around with a sword. Just running around with a sword. So maybe it was this episode that started that whole thing, but man, yeah, it's kind of an odd thing (laughs) that he's he's defined by a sword in his hand, you know? The 602 Club. I honestly was thrilled with the way that they set it up, because like you said, sort of like uh, Russian dolls, I guess, um, is a good way to explain it you introduce one character in this existing show and then it leads to that character's own show which leads to the next one's own show and introducing the edge a star trek discovery podcast but if i ended up missing an episode i would record 45 minutes of blank space on my vhs tape and then i would wait until it came around and then i would put the episode in its proper order this explains so much And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. And you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit that subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please, if you have the time, leave us a star rating and a written review. We would love to hear from you. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps. And of course, you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link there. And we have a listener email coming up. But before we do that, I just want to mention about patreon.com slash trekfm. You can go there and become a patron of the network by just going to patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. How many times can I say it? I can say it one more time. Patreon.com slash trekfm. So perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at fourth time, 
patreon.com slash trekfm. And you know, now we're going to dig into the mailbag and we have an email from Just Smith from Paris, California. Just Smith. His name is Just, just Smith. Smith. It's, it's just, Smith? Oh, Just, just Smith. His name is, quote, Just Smith. End of quote. <laughs> oh, okay. He's like Garrick. He's not Mr. Smith. He's plain, simple, Just, just Smith. Smith. And he was wondering <laughs> if Literary Treks has reviewed Star Trek Deep Space Nine Millennium. The answer to that is no. And that ends this segment of the feedback. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the answer is no. But I have to say, I read that when it came out, and I absolutely loved those three books. Absolutely loved them. And I do want to reread those someday. And I think I even put them on our list of future shows at some point. Dan, have you... Our, our ever-growing ever list. list. Have you read those books? <laughs> Can I let you in on a secret, yes. Bruce? I have never read those Ooh, books. We have to do them. So I've I've heard very good things. So yeah, definitely. I would love to check those out. Uh, Deep Space Nine is... Favorite is such a loaded word, but if, you know, gun to my head had to pick a favorite Star Trek series, you know, I could only watch one for the rest of my life. It would be Deep Space Nine. And I've heard those novels are really great. So yeah, definitely. I'm I'm glad that's on our upcoming list. Who knows when we'll get to them, but, but hopefully, man, if we could get to every novel on that list, I would be a really happy camper. So, you know, we should, we should definitely look at scheduling that one within the next two to four years. <laughs> exactly. It's not going to be this year. It's not going to happen in 2017, maybe 2018, maybe 2019. I don't know, but we will. I, yeah. I, I definitely want to get to these because again, it's one of those things where you read a novel and, and these came out in 2000 and here we are 17 years later. Does it still hold up? Is it something that, you know, if I read now going, yeah, you know, I really liked it back then, but now it, doesn't really work for me or because we've got new things of the star trek universe and it maybe doesn't really quite fit in with how things have gone since i don't know and i'd love to go to it it was written by judith and garfield reeve stevens and i love a lot of their novels and of course we've been t talking about the shatnerverse novels that they've they've written and so it it's definitely something we are going to consider so just smith we just like your email excellent <laughs> well, we'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show or any of the shows we've done, or like Just Smith, if you have ideas or questions about anything we've covered or you want us to cover, there are many ways for you to get in contact with us. The best place is to join in the larger conversation on the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and that'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And find us on Goodreads Group, where we have a bookshelf with all of our previously covered books, as well as the currently reading section so you know what it is that's coming up on future shows. Plus, we have great conversations happening about the books and the comics. Just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group. And we'd like to thank Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, and Brandon Shamatala for their support of the Trek FM network and being associate producers 
for literary treks as well. So Dan, when you're not babysitting BBQ, where can people find you? You know, <laughs> they told me it would be an easy job. It'd be an easy five bucks, but you try babysitting an omnipotent being. Okay. I'm just, you know, cosmic diapers. That's all I'm going to say. Ooh, but when I'm, yeah, it, it's, <laughs> oh, I've seen things, man. It's not cool. But if, when I'm not doing that, you can find me on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can find me on YouTube.com slash Kurtrats Productions and on Facebook.com slash Kurtrats Productions. And I have my website where I review Star Trek novels at treklit.blogspot.com. Now, Bruce, when you're not heroically trying to wrestle a spear away from striking Q in his heart and dooming the universe as we know it, where can we find you? I could kill him now. After all these years, I could kill him, but I'm not. What is wrong with me? I guess I'll just have to be on Twitter. And you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And you can find me talking Star Wars with Riley Blanton and Mark Herleman on the Star Wars Report podcast at StarWarsReport.com. And just, you know, other places around Trek FM. Been on Earl Grey recently and... Uh, the edge so who knows where i'll pop up and also the 602 club where i started all this mess and podcasting <laughs> so and of course you can find me in the babel conference so i guess that just about does it so I'm so we can find both you and amy on the edge how cool is that that's true and <laughs> she pushes me over the edge all the time <laughs> <laughs> no but anyway i want to thank everyone for listening and until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.